Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damien Garde, sheltering in place in New York City. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from my walk-in closet in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from under a shelter-in-place order in the San Francisco Bay Area. It is Thursday, March 19th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. We'll start by taking stock of this extraordinary moment brought on by the coronavirus pandemic. Our colleague, Helen Branswell, who has been leading stats coverage of the virus, will join us to share what she's watching. Next, we'll bring you a really powerful conversation with an ICU nurse in one of the epicenters of the pandemic. We interviewed Stephanie Bandick, who works at a Seattle hospital that's treating patients with COVID-19. Then we're going to talk about the many, many treatments and vaccines in development for coronavirus and how each is coming along. Before we get to this week's podcast stuff, Rebecca, Damien, and I humbly ask that you consider subscribing to STAT+. Plus. That's right, Adam. You know, at a time when STAT is making all of its coverage of the coronavirus pandemic free, we really appreciate the support for our subscription business. Yeah, Rebecca, you know, early this week, I debuted a new semi-regular column for STAT Plus called Biotech in the Time of the Coronavirus. The idea for this column sprung from some very honest, sobering, but also optimistic conversations that I had with a few veteran biotech CEOs about how the industry is coping with the challenges of the current outbreak. The reporters and editors at STAT are working hard every day to provide the in-depth reporting on the coronavirus outbreak that you've come to expect from us, while also maintaining coverage of the science and business of biopharma. You know, you can help us do all of that by subscribing to STAT Plus today at statnews.com backslash subscribe. As a special thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener, enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD. That's 10% off your first year by using the code P-O-D. We hope you enjoy Stat Plus, and thank you for being a Read Out Loud listener. It's hard to put into words how crazy the past few days have been. But just for a moment, I want to jump back to New Year's Eve, December 31st, 2019. So that afternoon, our stat colleague Helen Branswell sent out a tweet about a message she had just seen on a listserv run by an infectious disease society. Helen tweeted, and I quote, Hopefully this is nothing out of the ordinary, but a ProMed mail posting about, quote, unexplained pneumonias, unquote, in China is giving me SARS flashbacks. As we know now, our world has been transformed in the 79 days since, and Helen has been following it every step of the way. She joins us now. Helen, thanks for making the time to come back on the podcast. Hi, guys. Nice to hear your voices. So, Helen, if you had to pick one thing, what is the most important thing we've learned about the coronavirus and the disease it causes since we last talked to you a week ago? The thing that is most important that we've learned is that there are ways to flatten the curve of this outbreak to reduce transmission in communities and preserve the capacity of healthcare systems to respond. There are a number of countries in East Asia that are really doing a very good job of controlling spread. South Korea has had rather an explosive outbreak. There are over 8,400 cases at the moment, but they've been very, very aggressive at trying to beat back spread by 
testing very rapidly and lots of people. They've tested over a quarter of a million people trying to find out where the virus is spreading in the country. And using that kind of information layered on top of social distancing measures like school closures in some cases and, you know, urging people not to be out in public and, you know, in mass gatherings or places where they're going to have a lot of contact with other people. These places have really managed to slow the spread of the outbreak. And that is important for the rest of the world to know. So a report from researchers at Imperial College London has really generated a ton of attention in the past few days. So the experts there, whose modeling is seen as a kind of gold standard, projected that up to 2.2 million deaths in the United States from an uncontrolled spread of COVID-19. The report says that people may need to live with social distancing for 18 months or more, uh, maybe with some breaks, until a vaccine can get developed and tested. 18 months seems like a shockingly long time, Helen. Do you have any thoughts about this? Well, it's really hard, isn't it, to sort of wrap your head around that. We're in new territory here. We really don't know what this virus is going to do. There seems to be no reason to think it won't continue spreading. It's very efficient at that. And most of us are vulnerable to it. So it could be with us for a while until we learn how to make a vaccine and make it in sufficient quantities to uh, vaccinate a lot of people. So maybe kind of drilling down on, on one of the things you mentioned earlier, Helen, there's been a range of responses from governments like Italy and the United Kingdom and the United States versus what we saw in South Korea. With what we've seen so far, what are the big takeaways about what has been effective and and maybe what hasn't yet when it comes to reacting to this? Right. So the countries that have been aggressive have fared much better. The countries that either didn't know they had a problem, which was Italy's situation, or which have sort of thought, well, you know, this isn't controllable or containable, so we are going to try to mitigate, have come to a rather rude awakening when they've seen what's happened to their healthcare system. These measures are extraordinary and they're difficult and it's hard to know how long they can be contained. But the alternative is very bad. If the system collapses, a lot more people get hurt than just the ones who contract COVID-19. So let's drill down on the United States. The White House has really changed its tone in the past few days. Helen, what do you make of how Trump is talking about the coronavirus now? Well, it seems that at the highest levels of the Trump administration, the realization has set in of what this is and what it is not. It's not a hoax. It's not partisan. The virus doesn't care about what box a voter checks when they go into a ballot box. It simply cares about finding respiratory tracts to infect. And it appears that understanding has broken through. On a related note, Rebecca, you had a column out yesterday about how the White House is really relying on health tech and specifically telemedicine to save the day. Tell us about what you wrote in that column. Yeah. So Trump and his administration have really signaled in the past week or so how much hope and, and faith they're putting into health tech and especially telemedicine to save the country. In practice, that's meant lifting restrictions on telehealth services for seniors. Uh, Trump has also invited big tech companies to the White House to help craft the response to the virus. But I think there are big questions about whether the technology can meet the demands of this moment. If it can meet those demands, this could be a moment that shapes the future of how medical care gets delivered. And in things like talking to your doctor on FaceTime could 
could be the default for many patients with, with many conditions. Um, but success is also far from guaranteed. The telemedicine industry is not at all prepared for this moment. So I think you know this could be a real make or break moment for telemedicine. So in recent days, we've seen a renewed conversation around whether people who haven't been formally diagnosed with COVID-19 and don't have any symptoms should be wearing face masks right now when they, for example, go to the grocery store. Helen, what's your read on on sort of the merits of that idea? First of all, it's very understandable that people are afraid and that they want to protect themselves. I really get that. If we're talking about paper surgical masks, the World Health Organization and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention really say that those ought to be used only by people who are sick to effectively keep the virus-filled droplets that they're coughing and sneezing out from reaching other people, but that the rest of us shouldn't be wearing them and we probably aren't protected any better if we do. If people are walking around wearing N95 respirator masks, I would urge them to think about the fact that those are in very short supply in the world and healthcare workers need them more than the rest of us do. We need healthcare workers to stay healthy. And if they can't stay healthy, they're not going to be there for us when we need them. So Helen, let's talk about the next few days. What are some of the biggest questions you're going to be watching when it comes to metrics like test numbers and confirmed cases and deaths? So in the United States, there's been, as I'm sure your listeners know, a big problem in terms of testing. There's just been far too little of it done and a lot of time lost trying to figure out where in this country the virus is actually spreading. But increasingly more and more test kits are being approved for use. More commercial labs are getting up and running. And that's really where the testing capacity exists in this country. You know, public health labs can't run these tests at the scale that commercial companies can. And so as many more tests are run, we are going to have a much better picture of where in the United States the virus is spreading and what places may be on the same trajectory that Seattle was a few weeks ago. So we're going to know where things are about to get really hot, which will be helpful both from the point of view of being able to deploy resources, if there are resources that are available to be deployed, but also to really urge people in those communities to amp up social distancing as much as possible. Helen, thanks again for coming on the show. And as always, thanks for all the great reporting. Thank you, guys. Stay safe. So we're joined now by Stephanie Bandick, who is a registered nurse working overnight shifts in the intensive care unit of Seattle's Swedish Hospital. Stephanie and her colleagues are treating some of the earliest patients diagnosed with COVID-19 in the United States. Washington state, as many of you know, has been hardest hit by the coronavirus outbreak, with more than 1,000 cases of COVID-19 reported and at least 52 deaths. Stephanie, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us during what must be an incredibly challenging time for you and and your fellow nurses and physicians. It's my pleasure. kind of want to, you know, get some of the word out there that things are not as bad as some people think. Um, but it is still pretty serious. So Stephanie, tell us about the types of COVID-19 patients that you're treating in the ICU and, and kind of the symptoms that they're dealing with. 
for me, the age range kind of goes from somebody in their 20s um, into their 90s. So I kind of deal with all all different types of people. Some of them have comorbidities, some of them don't. And usually by the time they get to the ICU, the COVID-19 disease process has reached a point where they are struggling to breathe. And that's when I see them. So it's interesting you mentioned that you're seeing uh, some younger patients. Uh, you said patients in their 20s. You know, what we've heard is mostly, you know, severe cases are in older patients or patients who have pre-existing medical conditions. But can you tell us a little bit more? You are seeing younger people with very severe cases of COVID-19. There are some younger people out there, yeah. I mean, that's kind of the way that diseases work. They aren't really picky, um, or viruses, rather. They aren't picky. So... Anybody can be affected by it. So for these patients, regardless of the age, um, who are admitted with with severe COVID-19 symptoms, are you seeing a lot of them able to be discharged? And if so, how long does one have to stay in the ICU before being discharged? Some of them are able to be discharged. Others were unable. But I can't really give you a range on, on time. I mean, some of them end up in the ICU for a few days. Others can end up in the ICU for a few weeks. So there have been reports that some Seattle health workers are making their own masks out of office supplies. Does your hospital have enough equipment? My hospital has enough equipment for the people that actually need the equipment. I think some healthcare workers are a little bit scared that it can affect them. So they're using or they're trying to use mask when they're around patients that don't need it. And how about kind of oh, trying to ration um, and make sure that the people that actually need the masks and need all of that protective equipment, they have it. And how about ventilators? Does your hospital have enough equipment uh, to treat and take care of the patients uh, that you're seeing? For right now, yes. We'll see how everything goes in the future. And how is the hospital, uh, you know, where you work, or, or maybe even other hospitals in the Seattle area, how are they handling the influx of patients? I mean, do you, do you find the hospitals overwhelmed, or are you able to handle the number of patients that are coming in? I think that right now we've been able to handle it. I know my hospital system brought in at least 40 travelers um, at the beginning of this, traveler nurses and travel, like, respiratory care therapists. So we've had extra people and some people have been taking overtime shifts to help out. My specific hospital just opened up another floor on the hospital that wasn't being used just to take the COVID patients on that floor. And so we've seen that, you know, some hospitals have used investigational medicines that might end up helping with this infection. Is that something that's taken place at your hospital? Yes. Uh, So there are some (laughs) medications that are still not totally approved, I guess. So they'll go through all the risks and benefits of it and explain that it is a trial medication. And so patients have the right and the family has the right to decide whether or not they want to participate and see if it helps. So at the beginning of this interview, you know, you you said you mentioned that, you know, the situation is bad, but maybe not as bad as some people think. Can you explain what you mean by that? I know that there's a lot of panic out there and I guess I can see it when I go to the grocery store mainly but I think if we actually do the social distancing if we kind of maintain the isolation then 
I think America at least will be able to at least get a handle on this. And Stephanie, how are you personally holding up to the strain of working and and caring for patients right now? Uh, I mean, it's, it's difficult, but my job in general is difficult because I'm in the ICU. Um, I guess nurses are really good at adapting to things. So I've just been trying to adapt as much as I possibly can and um, try and be there to help support my coworkers. Um, And I just picked up an extra shift this week. So I'm trying to maintain my health and be able to take care of the patients that I do have. And then I'm trying to make sure that my family stays safe as well. Well, Stephanie, you know, thanks again for speaking with us. And we really appreciate everything that you're doing to help patients out there in the Seattle area. And please stay healthy. Yeah, (laughs) trying. Amid all of the discussion about epidemiology and intensive care, the outbreak has also galvanized the drug industry to find something that might prevent or treat infection. So depending on how you count it, there are about 80 treatments or vaccines now in some stage of development for coronavirus. It can be bewildering to keep track, and it's often difficult to discern what's a serious scientific endeavor and what's just a press release designed to make noise in a crisis. So we figured we'd run through some of the most promising novel ideas out there. We're going to explain how they work and how quickly they're coming along. And just in the interest of time, we're not going to discuss the many repurposed drugs in various stages of development. Okay, let's start with Gilead Sciences, which has been kind of the top of the news these days. You know, they are developing an antiviral therapy for the coronavirus. Damien, tell us how that's coming along. So that has been the fastest paced of all the programs. It is already being tested in late-stage clinical trials in China and elsewhere. And so the deal with Gilead's drug, which is called remdesivir, is that it's an antiviral, as you mentioned. It's meant to stop viruses from replicating, which, of course, is the bad thing that happens that leads to all the complications that we know about. So that in itself is a validated way of treating viruses. But the thing that I think has people watching remdesivir so closely is that This is an antiviral that Gilead has tested in the past, specifically against the Ebola virus, and it was not very effective in that context. That doesn't mean that it won't work for the novel coronavirus, but it has people looking closely at the early tendrils of data that we're getting. And then furthermore, it is administered intravenously. Someone has to, you know, be able to withstand intravenous treatment, and it's not sort of a pill that one could just take. So the other question is, even if it ends up proving itself to be effective, how practical will that be as this outbreak spreads? And Damien, when it comes to remdesivir, how are we going to know if patients are getting better? What what defines efficacy in this case? That's a very good question. So the way they're looking at it in the trial is basically the speed at which people who are hospitalized for the pneumonia symptoms of the virus get released compared with those who are on placebo. So the goal here would be to, one, obviously limit the number of deaths, but also to reduce the time that people who get infected with this virus and have serious symptoms have to spend in hospital care, which is obviously very key. And so as we know, and as we just heard from Stephanie Bandick in Seattle, If you can limit the amount of time that people spend in the ICU, you can make a world of difference on a healthcare system level. We understand what's happening in the United States right now in terms of this issue, and we've all seen what happened in Italy with respect to hospitals being overrun. And so any therapy that can minimize the amount of time a given person has to spend 
under intensive care that way would be huge for humanity, frankly. So moving on, Moderna Therapeutics made global news this week with the start of a clinical trial for a vaccine. Damien, what's their approach? So Moderna has built its entire business on the idea of creating messenger RNAs that you can give to a person and compel that person's cells to manufacture a given protein. And there's a trillion potential applications for that, but one of them that makes the most sense is vaccines, because if you could convince a person's cells to produce proteins that would lead to antibodies against an infection, you could theoretically prevent any kind of infection. And so the main benefit, I think, in this context for Moderna is that this is a very fast process. They can manufacture these mRNAs very quickly versus older approaches to vaccines, which again have proven very effective. It can take quite a long time. So in this case, Moderna took a matter of, I think, 42 days from first understanding the sequence of the coronavirus to having something that it could send to be tested in people. And that test began earlier this week with the help of the NIH. The thing to keep in mind with mRNA vaccines is, you know, exactly what makes them interesting is their novelty, but it's also what makes people a little bit skeptical. No one has ever developed an mRNA vaccine that is actually commercially available. And even beyond that, Moderna has run phase one safety studies of other mRNA vaccines, but they've never actually run a large efficacy trial. So this all makes sense on paper, but the thing to consider is that we're mostly dealing with paper. We, we don't really know whether what works in a test tube, what works you know, in the mind of many scientists will actually prevent infection once they get to that stage. We also got word this week that Regeneron Pharma plans to start clinical trials with a medicine this summer. Damien, what's the story there? So Regeneron is really one of the standard bearers of the biotech industry, and the way they got to that point is by making antibody treatments for a variety of diseases, most recently a blockbuster medicine for eczema. And so similar to as we were discussing with Moderna, which is kind of upstream of that process, trying to use RNA to get the body to create those antibodies. So using the exact same process creating those antibodies, as I mentioned, that treatment for eczema or treatments for cancer that Regeneron has won FDA approval for, they're trying to find antibodies that will block the coronavirus. And what we learned from them this week is that they've basically done so. They've isolated some hundreds of antibodies that, that might work, and they're now working to pare that number down to just two to create a cocktail that will ideally stop coronavirus from infecting people, and they hope to be in clinical trials this summer. The thing to keep in mind there, and this is not, I'm not casting any doubt on, on the work of the scientists at Regeneron, but the process of selecting antibodies to go forward with introduces some risk. The reason we call this a novel coronavirus is because it's novel. We don't know exactly what will be the protective antibodies that end up stopping people from getting infected. So Regeneron is taking a calculated risk and making a gamble, and it's possible that they've done it right. They have a track record. They did this with Ebola back in that outbreak. And a clinical trial showed that their Ebola antibody cocktail was very, very effective compared to the standard of care. And so the hope is that they'll be able to replicate that. But, you know, like I said, we won't know until the uh, the clinical trials read out. So these are all ideas that make scientific sense. And they're being developed by companies and institutions that know what they're doing. Right now, something I'm hearing a lot from friends and family is things like, you know, when we have a vaccine or when we have a drug. Do we have any more clarity about the timeline here? Is there sort of a reasonable guess for when these things might reach patients in, in large masses? 
So there's been an important distinction to be made in public, I think, which is that there's a difference between when we have something that can reasonably be tested in human beings and when we have something that has been so well validated that we can give it to everyone who might want it. So on that former thing, we're pretty much already there. We're doing human trials of these therapies. On the latter, for a vaccine, I think even the rosiest take on this would require 12 to 18 months, depending on how things go. With respect to Gilead's remdesivir, as we mentioned at the top, we could get data from those studies in the next few months. And if they are overwhelmingly positive, or even mostly positive, that could be something that gets fast-tracked around the world very, very quickly. So it's kind of a tough question to answer, but I think, you know, just in the name of prudence, no one should expect anything game-changing for at least a year. Let me just add a note here, Damien, too, that I think, you know, once we get the Gilead results and those could come, you know, as soon as April, I think people are saying. And if those data are positive, you know, even just from a psychological standpoint, I mean, that's going to provide a real boost. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Empanado, who produced this week's episode. Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Give us suggestions for what you want to hear on the show, or just tell us how you're coping with the pandemic. You can do that by sending us an email to readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Stay indoors. Stay safe. We'll see you next week. Stay indoors.